Amy Cooter, I am a senior lecturer in sociology at Vanderbilt University. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University, these conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. Amy, thank you so much for agreeing to have this discussion. I think the work that you're doing is particularly timely. I had just shared a virtual space with you at the hearing that was held about extremist recruitment of veterans and efforts to do that. One of the lasting impressions I think people have of that hearing was just how much is unknown about some of these extremist topics, even as people are digging deeper and deeper into these issues. And so I guess my first question to you is you've been looking at militias and other forms of extremism for a while. Is there something fundamentally you think people just still don't grasp about extremism in the United States? I think for me, the biggest issue is something that was exemplified in January 6th, the way we often talk about these groups or these people as just outliers, as rare people in our society. But the reality is that a lot of these folks look completely normal, so to speak, from the outside and gradually get pulled into what we think of as being political extremism. We don't necessarily have to have people affiliated with a particular group to raid the Capitol, for example. And why do you think these extremist narratives have gone beyond perhaps those that we would generally sort of consider as part of established extremist movements? What's happening that is making this seem to impact a broader range of people in this country? I don't think there's just one answer to that, but I do think that, quite frankly, President Trump was a huge catalyst in this process. I think a lot of white folks in particular have anxieties about the economy, about changes to the racial makeup of our country, about changes to their personal circumstances that became very inflamed under him, both because of the pandemic in part, but because of his overtly playing into some conspiracy theories, playing into xenophobic rhetoric about the nation changing for the worse in a way that hit very precisely on those fears and made it much more legitimate for them to be discussed and displayed in a public space. Mm. I think one of the reasons I was particularly excited to speak with you today, too, is that I think a lot of this analysis that we've seen comes from people who are observing the commentary on social media from Mm -hmm. some of these extremist groups otherwise doing more sort of passive, if you will, analysis where you've actually spent some time interviewing some of these folks and understanding what animates them, what motivates them. Can you talk a little bit about, A, the importance of doing that sort of study and B, what some of the issues that you've learned in doing that that may not be captured for those who are studying it more from afar? So I think that's increasingly an important issue to think about really talking to these folks directly. I've also done some ethnography where I've gone to training sessions of different militia groups and really seen them interact with each other and interact with their firearms training and other sorts of training. And I think you just get a different look at some of what they're thinking, their motives, their fears, what they hope to get out of that group than what we see in those online spaces. Even though I think some people got really 
over comfortable, especially before Facebook deplatforming in terms of what they were putting online, we don't always necessarily see some of the actual inner workings. Folks are still often sort of aware that they're performing basically for an audience when they put things on social media. So in some ways it becomes almost more extreme than what the average look at the movement is. It also becomes a little bit more of a caricature really of the group as a whole because they take some of those extreme elements kind of have this group think type process and it becomes really intensified in terms of what this, this image is that they present. But when you see them in person, while there may be elements of that, there are also much more obviously inroads for meaningful conversations about what they believe and what maybe they get wrong in a way that perhaps we can address that in a, in a real way. It's really interesting. Do you think that maybe they become more caricatures of themselves, as you put it, online, because that's just sort of the culture of these online spaces, right? Where it's like selfie culture and you sort of exaggerate reality? Or do you think that? That's part of efforts to recruit people to sort of their fundamental agenda, or perhaps a little bit of both. I think it's been some of both. I'm, I'm not a social media expert across the board, but I know that, that most folks who are think that people sort of exaggerate their behavior in certain ways online, regardless of what the topic is, that we generally are a little more hostile to people in comment sections, for example, than we would be in person. And so I think that that is part of it. But especially, again, leading up to deplatforming, I think many of these groups had a heightened awareness of how a lot of folks were having similar fears, similar concerns as them, and looked at that as a potential opportunity to maybe not necessarily gain members, but gain further ideological support. How were you able to spend time with folks? Were they sort of naturally welcoming? Did it require some sort of understanding? Did they embrace you? How did they embrace you? And how did it come about? Yeah, so I grew up in rural East Tennessee where guns are very much part of the culture. I was a first generation college student, do not have the typical background of an academic. And when I went to Michigan for grad school, I was coming out of undergrad where I had focused on social movements and just kind of realized that the academy as a whole doesn't necessarily study things that we don't personally agree with. I realized that that included a whole lot of conservatism, but especially some of those more extreme elements. When I first started grad school, I actually thought I might try to study more overtly neo-Nazi groups. And conventional wisdom in circles at the time was that militias are an above-ground component, that they actually act like as a funnel to these more extreme groups. And I went to a public meeting, quickly realized that that just actually couldn't be true for the particular groups in that area but that those groups were worthy of study on their own. So I told them, my background told them that I thought that I could do a better job understanding some of what they were about than some sort of the stereotypical academic. And for the most part, they were welcoming. They were skeptical, but they were glad for the opportunity to try to share their side of the story as the way that most of them thought about it. It also helped that I was a woman because they could explain things to me in their own terms. I didn't necessarily have to prove myself in the same way that a man doing the same research would have needed to. That's super interesting. You know, I've had other folks on this podcast who have spent time with some of the subjects of their study and have shared similar experiences where there's more of an openness to communicate because they were female and maybe there wasn't that sort of more inherent 
I don't know, is it toxic masculinity or you can sort of frame what that means, like that effort to maybe feel more threatened? I mean, what what is it? Can you explore that a little bit? What is it about your your being a woman that enabled you to gain their trust? For the militia groups specifically, in their perspective, there's an increased chance that I would be a federal agent if I were a man, I think, just because of how they see that working. But it's also true that they just kind of expect men to have more of a responsibility to protect themselves, protect their families, to be knowledgeable about firearms. And even though I kind of was sort of knowledgeable about firearms, I could, in some cases, either pretend I wasn't, downplay that, or use that to my advantage in different ways because they saw that almost as a boost since my base threshold in their perspective didn't necessarily require that knowledge. Mm. You know, one of the things I think people think of when they think of militias, especially in this sort of current conversation, is that there's militia writ large and everybody, no matter where they are, part of the country, all sort of have their same marching order, same ideology, same beliefs. But there are obviously nuances and there's different groups and there's splinter groups and there's different beliefs. Do you have a sense, though, when you spent time with them, were they like hyper locally focused or was there an awareness of sort of broader other movements or groupings in different parts of the country? In other words, do they see themselves as being local or do they see themselves as being a national movement? Most militia units see themselves as fundamentally local, but potentially engaged in broader issues. They are aware of other groups. They're aware of the potential to have complementary interests. But militias, especially after problems that came out of the 90s where they attempted to have a top-down hierarchical national structure, they really have tried to think about themselves as more locally-based organizations. That said, in the last few years of the Trump administration, that started to change a little bit as they and a lot of people from a variety of walks of life felt threatened for a variety of reasons. Many militia groups became more willing than they had been for a number of years to quite literally bump shoulders with more extreme groups at protests and at other events that they thought captured some of those shared concerns. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those types of events are? Are these the reopened protests? Are these other types of events? Where do you see that? Yes, the reopening protests, any protests related to state lockdown measures, general concerns about the pandemic. Also, a variety of concerns coming out of racial protests following George Floyd's murder. Um, They kind of had a complicated relationship with those protests in the early days, but ultimately, most came to believe that protests, and in their view, riots, were largely being conducted by Antifa. From their perspective, Antifa is an anarchist organization that's not at all interested in racial justice, just in sowing chaos. And they felt they had to stop their spread before it came to their own backyard. How do you see the efforts to hold the insurrectionists accountable? 600 plus arrests, et cetera, including some militia folks, but not certainly all or even most. How do you see that animating or impacting those who identify as militias or a part of these groups, impacting what they may do or how they currently feel? Most of the groups that I have contact with, 
taking it back just a step further, really struggled after deplatforming to maintain a coherent kind of organization. Most were still very much reeling from that when January 6th happened, and not all, but most of them saw that as a problematic event, to say the least. Even ones who believed that the election was stolen thought that that was a step too far. At bare minimum, they think that that made militias look bad. A lot of them believe that the folks who were involved should be held accountable, but at the same time, there is an element that thinks that that was a false flag event, that it was just an excuse to go after militia groups. For me, I think what's going to really tell the tale, so to speak, is moving forward into the next election cycle, particularly the the next upcoming presidential election. I do think that a lot of these folks are kind of sitting back and watching what happens, But they're what sociologists call a movement in abeyance, meaning that those feelings haven't gone away. They're still ready to be activated. And I think that they can be stirred up very quickly if Trump reenters the arena or if someone who's directly kind of trying to follow on his legacy. That's interesting. It sounds like they need or will respond to a key leader or incident in order to be activated. What is that general threat that you think is posed by specific militias, you know, knowing that they're not all the same? Yeah, I think that the most extreme groups do pose a potential threat. Some of them are ready to lash out, usually against government actors, but potentially a variety of other people that they see as infringing on individual liberties and or shifting the nation in a direction that they want, don't want it to go. There certainly is a potential for violence to happen, especially in groups that are trying to potentially recruit veterans for their explosives knowledge, for example. Honestly, and perhaps on a good note, many of these groups are honestly too disorganized to actually act on such plans, but we shouldn't downplay that possibility. I do think that some of the more extreme elements have hung on since deplatforming and since January 6th, they're active some in person and on some other platforms. And I think that those spaces can have the potential to to sort of foster that extremism in the meantime. What do you think it is about their beliefs that enables them or supports this idea that they are right, are just, are the right people to defend freedom or whatever sort of it is that animates them? That's another thing where I don't think there's just one exact right answer. But I think for so many of them, a lot of it has to do with how ideas of nationalism, whiteness, and masculinity all intersect. In many history classrooms still today, from elementary school on up through high school, we still tell this story, this myth of the U.S. as being this perfect nation, as being founded by white men who were brave and strong and highly independent. And many of them see that as their legacy, as their responsibility to carry that and the ideology that supposedly went with that forward into modern day, where it's really up to independent, brave men to set the tone for the country, to make sure we're following the Constitution. Many of them convince themselves that they are really the only true patriots, the only people who really care about the way the nation is supposed to be in that legacy of the founding fathers. They believe other people should have the same outlook that they do. I guess in some ways that's kind of a universal, right? That goes well beyond just militias. Everybody thinks that they have a monopoly on what is right 
I guess the difference is not everybody sort of engages in the type of rhetoric that undermines democratic institutions or that encourages violence, but it's tricky there. Sort of switching gears a little bit, did like 10-year-old Amy feel or know one day she was going to be embedded with militias in Michigan and, you know, doing congressional hearings on how extremists are recruiting veterans? I mean, how did you end up here? What did you think you were going to (laughs) do? Yeah, I, I feel like I need to come up with some story about a chance encounter in the woods or something. It's <laughs> much more boring than that. I actually thought I was going to be a chemist for a very long time, went to undergrad and honestly just got bored with it. Took my very first sociology class, realized that was not at all what I thought it was and decided I thought people were more interesting to study because there's always a bit of an unknown factor. It's not as controllable as something that we're putting in a test tube and trying to figure out. People can be Um, more volatile than chemicals though. Yes, absolutely. Uh, But again, also for me, more interesting because of that. And so I kind of dove headfirst into sociology and psychology, didn't really figure out until senior year which one I wanted to pursue for grad school, and then still kept touch with both fields, really, as I, I took this on. And again, just decided to try to use my background to help fill in some important gaps, I think, that we have in sociology, but really in the academy as a whole. You know, I often ask people who are interested in working with ADL or getting into this field, what is it about, you know, extremism and hate and violence that makes, you know, you want to spend most of your waking hours? Is there something about specifically some of the focuses of your work being things that a lot of people actually want to get away from, but you're sort of going toward? What is it about you that sort of attracts you to that element of your research? I think I've always liked doing things that not everyone can do in terms of maybe not palatability, but access. I know that I was able to see many things in the field that a lot of other researchers would not have been able to just because of my background, because of my familiarity with firearms, with some of these general topics. And it's certainly trying some days, particularly when I'm looking at those more extreme elements that I kind of see it as using my skills in a way that maybe not everybody can. You mentioned earlier sort of having a non-traditional academic perspective. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I think you had also said, you know, sort of first generation of going to college, which by the way, I'm with you on that as well. So was there resistance to your ideas or do you feel like it was welcome, but it just wasn't traditional? People didn't know what to do with it. I just want to understand that a little bit more. It's interesting. Well, I, I guess the most efficient way to answer that is to say that ever since I started doing this research, since the very first time I went into the field, into a public militia meeting, I've been trying to tell people that A, this is not exactly what you think it is, and B, that matters because it shows us how extremism isn't necessarily rare. It shows us what all these folks actually have in common with who we think of as being normal people. And I definitely had a lot of resistance to that, or even sometimes resistance to studying whiteness at all in the way that I did and talking about how people think about it for themselves and how it then becomes instrumental in action. I've tried all along to talk about nuance in the movement. I think that's important for a variety of reasons, but including because we need to direct limited resources to the groups that are problematic. We need to know how to not make this problem worse by pushing people further into extremism. 
And every time I've said something like, you know, not all of these groups are overtly racist, I get accused of being a militia apologist. I think a lot of people don't want to think about themselves or their families as potentially having the same sort of beliefs in some mm -hmm. ways as some of these folks do. And it's not exactly been an easy road. It's really only been in the last couple of years that I think people have realized oh, wait, maybe she was right. Oh, <laughs> well, that must feel good. I think there are different efforts over the years to gain a real understanding of extremism. And sometimes that requires for some to engage, right, to understand and explain. And there's that fine line between sort of normalizing what people know is sort of anathema or problematic versus really just trying to understand, because the more we understand, the more we can prevent that in theory from expanding. And is that sort of one of the roots of sort of the tension perhaps that you had felt at least initially? That's certainly a tension that I've always tried to be aware of. I think sometimes some of the resistance I've found is that people don't even recognize that that is a boundary that sometimes some of the academics I've encountered just believe that talking about them in anything except purely negative terms means that we're over humanizing them and talking about them in a way that's not productive. And I just don't think that's true. I know journalists too struggle with that to yes. a degree as well in, in terms of wanting readers, for example, to understand what's sort of the mindset of an extremist. And sometimes they do it successfully. Other times, you know, arguably they're sort of normalizing that or mm -hmm. sort of amplifying it or making it sexy, if you will, in some cases. Right. And so it is a difficult line. I think a lot of different yeah. disciplines are struggling with that. When you go to like a, I guess we're still in the pandemic, right? Yeah. <laughs> but when you go to like a dinner party or whether it's virtual, or whatever, what do you tell people you do? <laughs> I usually tell people that I study militia groups in the U.S. And until fairly recently, people don't always know what to do with that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me about an inspiration of yours that maybe doesn't work in this field, but that you feel like had an impact on your career choice or sort of looking into this? Yeah. Um, one of my undergraduate advisors, Tony Brown, he had a lot of patience with my infinite questions as a first-gen student trying to figure out the academy and figure out sociology in particular. He does completely different research, but was very supportive of my efforts both in undergrad and through grad school. And I probably would not be here without him. So as you're sort of meeting new people who are maybe thinking about getting into this field, is there advice that you give them in terms of what to look at or what to be aware of, pitfalls and the opportunities? I think there are a variety of things. First of all, I think that sometimes people do get tempted to do this work because today it kind of seems sexy and dangerous and interesting. But I think it's important to keep in mind that there is the potential for real danger here, that not everyone is suited to do in-person work with groups like this for a variety of different reasons. It may not be the background issues, it may be personality issues, it may be personal factors that just make it a bad decision. It's just, it's not something that everybody should do. Sometimes when people contact me as well, I have concerns. They're more interested from a political level as opposed to research-based reasons that maybe they, they find these ideas interesting in a way that they're being drawn to that ideology. And I think that that is something you have to be really careful about, especially getting back to your question about normalizing and humanizing and then potentially some people being sucked into it as well themselves. Yeah. 
how do you sort of create a healthy work-life balance, right? Not because of just the heaviness of the topics, but just because I think in general, this field can be consuming both emotionally and just time spent too. How do you sort of yeah. find that balance? Well, I am certainly not perfect on this. I think that during a pandemic in particular, that's a struggle for everybody. But for me, I try to have sort of a set amount of time each day that I devote to that. And then I just cut it off because otherwise there's always another question or another website or something that you can get kind of pulled into. And so I, I just kind of have a, a hard stop on those issues. I also make sure that I just plain take breaks if I need to, because some days aren't so bad, but some days you find yourself in a data quarter that's particularly emotionally heavy. And, and it's important to kind of recognize, I think, when that's getting to be too much for a variety of different reasons. Have you had, you know, whether it's students or other colleagues sort of come to you for advice on how to find that balance? Some, I think that that's like, especially again, during a pandemic, that's something that students in particular have been talking a lot about right now. One thing I've done in the last couple of semesters that's new for me is I just don't check email on the weekends. And some of my students are having a hard time <laughs> adapting to that. But I think it's important that no matter what our work is, we remember that there's there's always going to be more waiting for us. And it's it's okay to set limits on our time and have family time and have personal time as well. And I, I try honestly to model that for my students. That's great. That's great. Sort of going back a little bit, just a couple more questions. Are there fundamental elements of this field or the subject of this field? So let, let's talk about fundamental elements of, say, militias and anti-government extremists that you feel like policymakers just get wrong that we really need to explain better? What are some of the issues that in order to ultimately, I presume the goal is to sort of mitigate these threats, it's not just to understand them and provide sort of a public service, but it's also hopefully others or ourselves use it to push back against this and to make a safer community. Are there certain things that whether it's media or policymakers just don't get that you think we really need to help them with? Well, I think there are a variety of possible things here. One that is particularly relevant, I think, from the folks that I have talked to has to do with educational standards. And we usually leave that up to states. This is not an easy thing to solve. But I really genuinely believe that a lot of this ideology and frankly, a lot of our racial problems also come out of just plain not having honest education about our history and about our society. So many of the folks I've interviewed and even many of my students who come from very elite high schools get very partial history lessons and are left thinking that we've never really done anything wrong as a country, that everybody has equal opportunity. And until we start sharing more about our both historic and present reality, I think a lot of that mentality is not going to change. I also think with militia groups, we overemphasize the idea of economics as being a root cause of their problem. It is true that many of these folks struggle financially, but we often reduce the equation to just that element alone. And it's much more complicated than that. Poverty is not a driver of extremism in the way that we often portray it as being. It's a big, complicated morass of issues that often get lost in that particular conversation. Yeah, I think a lot of folks are hoping that there's some clarity on all those things coming yeah. out of the January 6th commission. And I think maybe a unrealistic hope that there's some shared understanding of what actually happened. I right. don't, I don't think shared understanding 
and the U.S. sort of fits in the same sentence these days, but there's always that hope as well. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work? I've been trying to be fairly active on Twitter these days. I also have my website, amycooter.com. You can check out most of my stuff there. Trying to be more active on Twitter. Well, you know, good luck with that. (laughs) I mean, especially in the uh, trying to find that sort of balance too. I find Twitter can be uh, good and bad as we all know. And and hopefully you won't find yourself sort of being attacked in that space as people tend to be, especially females who are doing this type of work. I intentionally avoided it for several years, but I've, I've always tried to have the application of the public piece of my work be honestly the most important as opposed to the ivory tower piece. And so I'm trying to get a little bit more comfortable in that space. Very cool. Thank you so much, Amy, for spending the time for this discussion. Really appreciate all the work that you've been doing. Hopefully one day, maybe we'll meet in person and not just on Zooms, in hearings and in podcasts and in other (laughs) events. But again, thank you so much. It's great speaking with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and education that enables law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit american.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.